Welcome everybody. We're gonna get started. Go ahead, grab another drink or some pizza. We've got a lot of pizza. Uh, and grab a seat wherever you feel comfortable. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Justin. If this is your first time, glad that you're here. Most of you probably know the drill already. You'll need these. Uh, tonight's gonna be a special night because we have all of these questions that we haven't that we've gotten never to. Answered. They've never been answered. And so we've just compiled the last, is it on? It says it's on. It's got a green light. And mine has a green light. Is it working? Is it too low? Can y'all hear me? I mean, I can hear you. You can hear me, because y'all are right there. <laughs> Not in the microphone. Oh, oh, hey. All right. Do you feel powerful go. now? Sure. <laughs> Anyways, we have all these questions that we've, uh, had submitted from you guys over the last few sessions that we've done. And so can't wait. They're, they range all over the map, so it's good stuff. And of course, uh, we're gonna stop about eight o'clock and look at the questions that you guys want to ask tonight. So we're not just gonna be beholden to all of these. You can submit anything you want. If there's something burning on your mind that you'd love us to answer, you can go ahead and submit that. Uh, who's gonna do the questions tonight. Moderate those. Colton. Yes. Sweet. Thanks, Colton. A uh, few announcements, Brian. So one announcement is that, and I just realized I forgot to double check the date on this, but there is an amazing event coming up called Walk for Water, uh, which is sponsored by Water Mission, which is one of the frontline organizations in the world working on the issue of clean water. Um, particularly in places where there are natural disasters or countries where they um, don't have clean water. And so this is a fundraiser for them, but it's a walk, and St. Philip's has a team going for that. And uh, it is really a lot of fun, and it's a great way to uh, make a difference by doing something fun with your friends. I, it's in... It is March 26th. Okay, thank you. I was gonna, I was gonna guess the 27th, so I was close. That's Saturday. That's yes. what it is. Yeah. And in Last addition Saturday. to participating in the walk, if you're interested, they also need volunteers to help make the walk happen. Um, so feel free to chat with me. Um, I can connect you with the people who are interested in volunteering. Yeah, it's an amazing organization. I've done a couple of mission trips with them, and I will never forget one time being in the mountains of Honduras in an area where they had never had clean water, and the village had all of these diseases, and Water Mission came in, and we helped. We were there right at the end when they were completing this water purification system, and we were able to give hundreds of people the first cup of clean water they had ever had. And it was just amazing. But wow. the fact that they're here in Charleston, headquartered, uh, it's just an awesome opportunity. Yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, we'll be there. I'm we excited will. for that. Yep. And uh, our next Theology on Tap is going to be really special because I don't, we just saw this. It's on Mardi Gras, apparently. So it's going to yep. be great. To start, we're going to go, uh, there's a pancake supper over in the parish hall of St. Philip's. So we're going to start early. Was that 530? 5.30, yep. And it's all the pancakes you can eat, um, plus sausage and bacon. And this is a weird tradition that goes, 
way back to the Middle Ages that before Lent started, you had to use up all the butter and fat in the house, and so pancakes were a big thing. If you know about England, you will know that on this day, Mardi Gras, which is called Shrove Tuesday in the church, they have pancake races, even in Parliament, where they have like a little pancake in a skillet that you're trying to flip while you run. So you're going to be entering into that stream of tradition by coming to the pancake supper. We could do pancake races to Henry's. Yes. Awesome. So yeah. we'll start there. No, but for real, we're going to start there and come over here. We may or may not do pancake races. That may just be me and you. Or we may or may not be dressed for Mardi Gras. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but it's, I'm excited. We're going to talk about uh, a Christian's understanding of partying. Yeah. Because it's Mardi Gras. And so the idea of feasting and, and partying, uh, that's a good thing. So we'll talk about that. Tonight, like I said, we have all of these questions. And I'm going to let you do the honor to just dive right in. And we're going to we're gonna really do our best to do like 30, just snatched it 30 second answers. <laughs> this is very important. 30 seconds. That's it. 30 seconds. Your all time right. starts. <laughs> all right. Here we go. What is your take on Lewis's view of heaven and the great divorce? All right. So you may not have heard of C.S. Lewis, but he... <laughs> All right, so C.S. Lewis, uh, for those of you who don't know, author of Chronicles of Narnia, a brilliant atheist who became a Christian as an adult, uh, professor at Oxford. He wrote a book called The Great Divorce, which I would highly recommend. It has nothing to do with divorce. It's not saying, oh, divorce is great. So many people are like, why does Lewis like divorce? That's not what it's about. There's a poem by William Blake, you might remember from school, you studied Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. Um, but he wrote another poem called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. So this is Lewis's book about the divorce of heaven and hell. And he calls it a supposal of what heaven might be like. And so in this supposal, there are all these people that live in what Lewis calls the gray town. And they go get this line for a bus. And the bus is going to take them to heaven. It's like... Uh, Y'all are too young to know about Gilligan's Island and the three-hour tour. But it's sort of like that on a bus. It's a flying bus. It goes up to heaven. You get off the bus, and you can experience the outer fringes of heaven. But what happens is the people that go really don't like it. They don't like heaven because it like messes with what they want to do, and they can't have their own way all the time. And... Part of what Lewis is trying to do, and I think this is what the question is getting at here, um, Lewis's view of heaven in this story, I think it's very in accord with what scripture teaches, um, that it is about joy, that it is about beauty, it is about worship, and it is about being made fully who you were created to be without sin, without any of the things that hold you back in this mortal life. And so many people in the story are held back by different things that they don't want to give up. So I wouldn't say, and Lewis himself said, don't make this try to be exactly the theology of heaven. But I think it makes some really excellent points. If you're curious, it's a great book to read. Got us this to stick the, there we go, boom. Is it off again? Hello? Okay. Anyways, I haven't read The Great Divorce. I know that's a shocker. I'm back on again. Very strange. Um, it's you, not me. I'm sure it is. Mm-hmm. 
one of the things I love I about those... I cut you off because you haven't read The Great Divorce. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody even heard it because it wasn't on. All right. Uh, no, but I, what I love about C.S. Lewis, and I don't know if this is in The Great Divorce or not because I haven't read it, but what I do know is from Lewis is his idea of heaven as infinite discovery. Yes. Infinite adventure. And that is one of the things that I have found, the more I've thought about heaven, it would be hell if it was even just like the things of this world. Like anything that is created, that is not infinite, you're going to eventually get bored with. Even the yep. greatest things in this place. I mean, tell me that's not true. Like every single thing that we um, love so much in this life will eventually, if we're going for, on for all eternity, will get boring. Mm-hmm. And so God, who is infinite, is also infinitely good, and there's unfathomable adventure and discovery that he captures so well in yes. all of his fiction that he writes. Yes, and he, one of his quotations is that joy is the serious business of heaven. And he has this refrain in um, The Last Battle about Aslan's country, which is heaven, just further up and further in, that there's just always more to explore it, it's exactly the same way in the Great Divorce. Great. So you called it right, even though you didn't read it. I had a feeling it would be like that. Yes. There we go. Awesome. Well, we did great. That was five minutes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> when will the world end, and when will Christ <laughs> return? These are all over the place. Mark, Mark's like, whoa. Uh, all right. Okay. Uh, all right. So the first thing that we can say, this is the one thing we can say authoritatively in response to that question, is we do not know. Because Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. And he used the example of the thief in the night, um, that if you knew when the thief in the night was coming, you would like wake up. Um, the master who's away from the house and the servants are not paying attention and then the master comes back. Um, what we do know is that uh, Christ will return and Christ promised that he would return. The scriptures say that he will return and that the time that we live in is what theologians call the now and the not yet, where Jesus's work of redemption of this world has begun, but it's not yet completed. And so one day Jesus will come, um, the trumpet will sound, and then there's some variations on a theme with this, but ultimately the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem will come down, and those who are followers of Jesus will rejoice and live um, forever with him in that new heaven and new earth. Yeah, yeah. so we don't know. And, and I think the danger is often when people look, particularly the book of Revelation, and they start trying to do all this like interpreting of, ooh, this is, he's talking, you know, John who wrote Revelation in 90 AD or whatever, he was really talking about Vietnam or Russia or China or whatever it is. And you're like, well, no. But the point of all of it is we should be ready yes. at any moment. And, um, and that we will not know specifically. Right. And there, if you look in history, there have been in every generation people that were sure, absolutely sure that the end of the world was coming. And there was one a whole series of them pretty recently, right around the time that some of y'all were born um, in the year 2000. And there was a lot of uh, talk about that and one Christian radio host who thought the world was gonna end and people like quit their jobs and gave away their pets and like- This is Y2K, y'all are all definitely alive in Y2K, surely, I hope. That's right. You remember all of that? No, okay. 
Yeah, that was good. You're up. Thank you so much. Oh, I love this question. In the Bible, it says if we lay around a lot, it's lazy, which is bad. But how do we know when we have rested too much? Well, that's good. That's a great question. That's good. All right, so the Bible does say um, Proverbs is full of uh, slogans, if you will, about laziness and the sluggard, which is one of my favorite words in the Bible, sluggard, so fun to say, um, who's just a lazy person. And we also have forgotten, those of you that are students of medieval theology, I'm sure most of y'all spend your spare time reading about that, um, but you would have read about the seven deadly sins, and you would have realized that one of those sins was sloth. And you might have thought a sloth was only a creature that appeared in the Hot Doritos ad in the uh, Super Bowl, uh, but actually sloth is a sin. It is a sin of laziness and refusal to commit. So I would say one of the things about this is that rest is good. Uh, and I refer you back to the earlier session we did on rest here. Um, but if all you do is rest, if all you do is lie around, and particularly if all you do is lie around and scroll. Yeah, that's not resting. That's <laughs> not resting. And that is probably sloth. Um, so I would say one of the things that uh, Scripture talks about is having... Um, commitment to the right things and the right priorities in your life. And if you're lying around all the time, you can't be committed to those priorities, which would be worshiping God, um, loving your neighbor as yourself, um, using your gifts for the glory of God, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah in the talk, we talked a little bit about um, rest is both something that is an, you know, an absence of work, but it's also a positive uh, doing of certain proactive. things. It's a proactive, yes. it's yes. active, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's exercise can be rest when you're doing this. This, this isn't like the ancient Jewish people who looked at all these various rules stop to try. Everything. Yeah, you have to stop everything. You can, and it gets like yes. really crazy. No, but it's, it's doing, yes, sleep is really important. And so if you're going to sleep, actually sleep, you know, do that. If you're going to uh, take a nap, that's important. If you're going to read a book, you know, these things are life-giving. Uh, but so is also, you know, for me, it's going and playing a round of golf on, on my day off. It's uh, exercising. It's cooking a delicious meal. Like, these things are active. That you're not being just outside. Being outside. Yes. Yeah. Um, all sorts of things there. This balance of uh, not doing things that are exhausting, such as scrolling, which is actually exhausting, and then doing things that are life-giving. Yes. Yep. Could you talk about how to keep or make a habit of daily prayer or quiet times? Could you talk about making a habit of daily prayer? I love that it starts with could you talk because we have so much trouble with that, the we, two of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is actually a great question. I think that the habit of daily prayer or quiet time uh, is an incredibly important spiritual discipline, and it is the root from which a whole host of blessings will flow in your life. But I think the problem for, well, I'll just speak for myself, 
I used to hear when I first uh, became serious about the Christian faith, I would hear from people, you're supposed to have like this quiet time and this prayer time when you get up in the morning. And so I thought I was supposed to like get up at 5 a.m. and like have this two hour time with God every morning, which would probably be awesome for some people, but um, I don't have a long enough attention span to make that work. And so I would like make myself do that for like two mornings. And the first one I'd be going, oh yeah, that was great, it was great. Well, um, <laughs> got it. so much for that. It was so good. <laughs> it was so good. Um, and so I would think it was so great, and but in the back of my mind, it was like, and then the next day I would do it, and I was like, this is really, I, I didn't really enjoy this. And then I wouldn't do it anymore, and I'd feel terrible. And I would feel guilty and think I was a terrible Christian and that God hated me because I didn't want to get up at 5 a.m. And that is not what this is about at all. You need to reframe the way you think about it. And to me, something that was really helpful was somebody said, think about how you look forward to someone that is one of the closest people in your life and being able to share with them about what's going on in your life and then hear from them about what's going on in their world and all of that. And that, that that's not a perfect construct for time alone with God, but it's close. And so the other thing they told me is it's much more important to be consistent than it is to have a long time. So I just started having five minutes on my knees every morning. The on my knees was important because that way I didn't fall back asleep. But I literally rolled out of bed next to the bed, knelt down and just prayed for five minutes consistently. And it was transformative and then that grew into more things. So having an idea of what you're going to do is important. I would also add the removing obstacles Mm -hmm from the things that keep you from forming this habit, right? So for me, I really struggle, first thing, with my phone being by the bed in the morning, is I'm probably gonna grab that sucker and just immediately go to email or whatever it is. Like, So I think what I found helpful was getting these, and they have little alarm clocks that are battery powered, that are analog or whatever it is, I don't know, and, and it's right by my bedside, and I had to learn how to use them. <laughs> and, uh, but I found that when I use that, I actually am not nearly as distracted with my phone. It's in another room, you know, yep. and that's when I'm, I'm doing well, I think. Also, like, just making sure that, it sounds kind of silly, but oftentimes I can be in a really, in a, in a hurry. So I know I'll, the first thing that I'm going to throw out is this habit that I'm trying to form because I don't have enough time. So setting clothes out, making food for the day, that sort of thing <clears throat> can be a way of removing obstacles mm-hmm. of, of what can get in the way and then having inviting people if you have roommates who are open to it like doing it together you know these sorts of practices we encourage mm-hmm. you to think about doing with other people and that can be a way to have accountability and even if you can't physically be present having somebody that you talk to about it is another way of just having another way in to having the habit form and I think having a set place and maybe even a little ritual can be helpful mm-hmm. um, I've found that um it's also helpful uh, to mix it up sometimes. So sometimes I have a particular place in my house I'll go and I'll light a candle and sit in the chair there and have that time. And that's very meaningful as well. Oh, yes. And making, making it, like, really special, too. Making, yes. Like, looking Something forward. Something to look forward to. So Andrew, one of the other uh, pastors on staff with us, 
he won't have, he's like addicted to coffee like us, and um, he won't have his first sip of coffee until he opens his Bible in the morning. Mm. I haven't been brave enough to start that yet, but I think that would be a really cool way of <laughs> trying to start it. So, yes. Could the desire we have for something more in this life be an evolutionary chemical reaction? That is actually a really great, great question. There have been some big articles in um, popular magazines about that where some people posit that our desire for God, our longing for heaven, our longing for beauty, truth, and goodness, that that's actually just uh, chemicals that are planted in us through uh, an evolutionary process. Uh, I would say no. Um, the reason I would say no is that even if that were true, that in my understanding of evolution, that God is the author of evolution. And so if that's true, it's because there's something real that God has planted in us to long for. So at some level, that doesn't really matter um, because what we know from the scriptures is that the things that we long for are real. So if you take scripture out of it altogether and you take Jesus out of it, then I think it's an open question. But I think with scripture and um, with the revelation of Jesus and who he said he was and is and his teaching, uh, it kind of puts the matter to rest. Yeah. So if it's a, what you're saying is if it's a chemical reaction, God, who's over evolution, intended it to be so. Right, right. Yeah, I think, um, so maybe just another way of looking at it. I mean, it certainly could be, and that's what you said, but the idea of something like natural selection tends to go the opposite way of um, this sense that there's something more right, in life. Right, it's very utilitarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. That's that's what I was going to say. <laughs> that's, that's it. All right. Pretty good. All right, let's keep going. Uh, can too much planning and scheduling interfere with letting God, God's plan play out? Too much planning and scheduling interfere with letting God's plan play out? I would say yes, because I've noticed uh, particularly being a slave, I think, what this question is getting at. A slave to a schedule. A schedule is meant to be a servant, right? It's supposed to help you free up that sort of thing. And if you're probably like me, there's no way you get at everything in your schedule every day. Uh, or you've learned the ability to have a flexible schedule, I think. But what I've learned, one of the things I've learned from you is treating interruptions as something from the Lord each day. And, you know, somebody like me oftentimes just walks into your office you've always like set aside what you're doing and given me attention and you do that with a lot of people and I think that's an important thing to do uh, so I can see one way that question is being posed is if you just stick to those tasks all the time you can miss out what God's having for you yeah I would completely agree uh, that being over I'm, and let me say I'm all about planning and scheduling I've Maybe I'm just a little bit obsessive compulsive, not too far, but, um, but I also think you can be a slavish adherent to that in a way that absolutely kills all the joy in your life, and it makes it impossible for you to be in the moment. And Jesus is such 
a great example when you look at him and you look at the way he lives his life um, and it really there are a lot of interruptions one of my favorite stories is when there's this powerful synagogue official and the messengers come and say this guy's daughter is dying and the guy comes and begs Jesus to come and this is a big powerful rich person um, who has a lot of clout in that community and then this poor woman who's unclean comes up and pulls on the hem of Jesus's garment and interrupts him and then he stops instead of going with the man and he deals with this woman and is compassionate and heals her and then the people come and say well this guy's daughter is dead now and Jesus is totally unruffled by the whole thing he is paying attention he's fully present with each thing that happens and just taking it in the order that it comes and I also think one of the reasons not to be slavish about this is if you see there's a beautiful sunset and you're busy doing something you ought to stop what you're doing and go appreciate that sunset for a while and not be enslaved to your schedule or the call that you're on for your work yeah that's good and I would say that schedule, that like the being attentive to interruptions, is the exception to the norm of the schedule. Like that's a, that's the the general rule, right? But you have to be open to these things that God brings across your path. And um, so I would say that again, the schedule is a servant. It's a tool that's not meant to be slavishly followed, yes. like you're saying. Um, and you see in Jesus's life over and over, he's willing to his priorities are so he's so sure of his priorities that he's willing to disappoint people and give other people his attention that are is shocking right in the context yes. so uh it's we're going to go a, a few more just because we have so much how are we doing on questions you have some so okay so we're going to do a few more yeah, keep like, sending questions do what do like 10 more minutes and then 10 more minutes sweet all right well Shoot, we can get through all of these really easily then. It doesn't seem like the Christian church of today would thrive nor even survive in the first century. What is the church missing today? Oh, wow. Um, there's so much you could say about that. Uh, one of the things that I think is important is that if you look at the first century church, there are certain things that characterize it. And I love what Acts chapter 2 says. It says that the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And then it goes on to say that God added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I think if you look at a lot of churches today, they're not devoted to those things. Devoted is a big word. Devoted is what... Olympic athletes are to their sport. They are making it the focus of their lives. And so uh, I think in a lot of churches in general, you see there, there can be weak teaching. Um, there can be a lack of community. Uh, there can be a lack of worship and breaking bread in the Eucharist. There can be a lack of prayer. And there can be more of a preoccupation of trying to be relevant to what the church perceives as happening in the culture. But I think that the, the power of the early church came from being devoted to those things. So, 
Yeah. Yeah, I would say, I mean, gosh, it depends on where you're looking in the world. Like, some some of the places in the world today, I would say, this looks exactly like the first century where they're right. doing Right, especially, if, I, know, I was going to talk about persecution, but that yeah. matters the, too. The role of suffering, and that is something maybe that the American church is getting into. We've been so decad decadent and affluent in America that it hasn't really cost us much for our faith. But if you look around the world, Christianity is thriving in places where they're suffering, persecution, uh, poverty, because and, and that was exactly the sort of uh, environment of the first century that the Christian church, me uh, the Christian message spread so much. And so I think there are plenty of places around the world. China is one of them today, where it's it's growing leaps and bounds, uh, mostly underground against the the role of the state. And you know, it, it remains to be seen what's going to happen in the West. I guess, yeah. but um, yeah, it's a great that, question. Though. This culture of this culture tries to pick and choose what to believe from the Bible. Where does the Anglican Church stand on absolute the absolute truth of the Word of God? Uh, that is a very important question, and the uh, Anglican Church doctrine about Scripture comes out of something called the Thirty Nine Articles, which um, go back to the sixteenth century and are part of the English Reformation, so it's very much sort of the same movement that uh, Martin Luther helped spawn in Germany, um, that came from a desire to restore the scriptures to their rightful place in the life of the church. And so um, there are different ways that people express this. I would say the Anglican church understands that uh, the scriptures are composed of a lot of different kinds of literature, that there are some things that are direct commandments, there are other things that are allegory, there are other things that are parables, um, there are things that are poetry, um, and you need to bring all of the context um, of scripture into understanding each of those things. But that we would say the scriptures are authoritative for the life of the church and for the individual, and that they are the truth um, with a capital T, um, but that we are called uh, to understand them in the context of the fullness of God's revelation in all of Scripture and in Jesus Christ. Yes, amen to that. And I would add that part of, I mean, kind of what I said already with the global church, two distinctives of Anglicanism is that it is part of a global church. The Anglican Communion is all the churches around the world in communion with the Church of England. And so, although this culture tries to pick and choose what to believe from the Bible, that's not really the case in a lot of other cultures in the world. So we look to the voices of our brothers and sisters around the world. Secondly, and similarly to that, is we have a really high view of church history. So most of the church's history, in fact, the entire church history recognizes everything Brian just said about the qualities and characteristics of the Bible, that it is the uh, word of God, that it's the highest authority that we have, and, the, and we recognize that church history has affirmed that very thing throughout the centuries. And so we place that sort of interpreting the Bible, we just don't do it on our own. We look to the Christians who've gone before us as well, and that's what they've, they've said about it. So, got a few more before we how does seeking self-satisfaction 
over serving God play into anxiety? That is a terrific question. And I think that there is a deep truth that's in this question, which is the more that we seek after ourselves and our own self-actualization and our own happiness, the more anxious and depressed we become. Because the problem with that way of living is that I believe that God has hardwired us to find joy in serving him and in serving other people. And if we're just all about ourselves and trying to make our own little world the way that we want it to be, we just can't ever get there. And the other problem that I think we have with this is we are so addicted to comparison with other people and we become enslaved to that comparison. And there's always somebody that seems happier than we are, more satisfied than we are, who's got a better job than we have or a better looking significant other, whatever it might be. And we just set ourselves up to be on this endless quest. Whereas instead, Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And it's just such a contrast. And I think that um, when we seek God first, you know, it's just what Jesus said um, when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's just we try to get the cart before the horse and it doesn't work. I tend to think of anxiety and depression kind of like the check engine lights that come on. They are the manifestations that something is wrong with the machine, you know? And so if God's designed us this way, those typically are things that come up um, that, and, and of course, it, it's not always something, like I do believe that we could have uh, a predisposition to anxiety and all that, but generally, we contribute to our own anxiety and depression because we are not, it's a user, uh, operating failure basically right and so the one of the ways I think about it, like just like what you said the God's designed us to live a certain way to make much of him to serve other people and so the more consumed we are with ourselves it's going to be that check engine lights gonna come on you know I love the CS Lewis quote that I feel like ties into this that humility which is what we're designed to be is not thinking of yourself less it's thinking less no no <laughs> Strike that. <laughs> Reverse it. It's thinking uh, of yourself. Thinking less of yourself. Oh man, I'm butchering this. What is yeah, it? you're gonna have to say it. Thinking of yourself. Okay, now you've got me. You've got me all tongue-tied, Justin. So yes, this is a paraphrase of Lewis. So he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In other words, not thinking of yourself so often not thinking that you're a worm. Yeah. And I think that's one of the keys to anxiety, conquering anxiety and depression in your life, probably. Yes. One of them. There's many. Episodes. Which is why there's so many scriptures about set your mind on things above where Christ is. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, one last one, and then we'll dive into... I don't think that was meant to be there. <laughs> that wasn't even a question. <laughs> I, I put these together. It was together. a statement. It was. It was an actual statement. It was uh, how do you practice spiritual disciplines with another person? Yes, that is a great question. Uh, the first thing that you do is decide what spiritual disciplines you want to practice. 
and then you decide which person you want to practice them with. Uh, that's the sort of basis for that. And then you talk about what would be life-giving ways of doing that. And there are a lot of ways you can do that. Uh, if you have a roommate that you can actually be together um, doing spiritual disciplines together where you're reading a scripture passage together and then praying for each other after you discuss it. Um, another way you can do spiritual disciplines even with people who are not in the same city, and I've done this a lot, and it's been such a huge blessing to me that I never would have thought, um, is doing a Bible study with somebody that lives in a different city and agreeing that you're going to study, say, the Gospel of John together and you're going to read um, a half chapter each day and then at 10 o'clock Eastern time in the evening, you're going to text each other what your favorite verse out of that was and what it was that it meant to you. Um, and then the other person does the same. It's, it's an amazing way of deepening your fellowship with that person and going deeper in the Word of God. But there are a million ways to do these together. Yeah, yeah, and it depends on which one you, you go after. Like, I think prayer is probably the easiest one, as much as we're uncomfortable praying out loud or maybe with other people. Uh, you know, that, I, I think, is probably one of the easiest places to start because Jesus talks about, you know, praying, humbling yourself like a child, and, you know, mm -hmm. he's our Heavenly Father. And so he doesn't despise any words that we have to say to him. And I would say also thinking really carefully about who you invite uh, and uh, because surely there's going to be people out there that are on the same page in some area, whether it's um, opening to, or open to reading the Bible together and, or, or maybe it's prayer or fasting or whatever it is. Like just really think deeply about which person you and pray. are going to yeah, yes. right? and pray for who would be a wise choice, I think, for the particular discipline you're looking for. But it's a great way to have some accountability in your spiritual disciplines to share and it with Yeah, someone. and it enhances it. Like, that's the thing. I mean, when we just read the Bible on our own, it's it's good, right? But, like, how often has it been the case for me that in reading it with other people, my own view has been sharpened or challenged or uh, I see something really rich that I had no idea was there. Mm -hmm. And so that can be across the, the disciplines yeah. that, that happens. Great questions. All right, let's open it up now. Yes, if everyone can take 20 seconds to look at the questions and just give them a quick light, and we will get started. So the handheld is MIA. Do you want to repeat the question? Yes, okay. we are taking 20 seconds right now to like or dislike. Actually, I don't think you can this way. Yeah. <laughs> We're only positive here. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Between the two of us, surely one of us will remember to say the questions. All right, the Jeopardy timer just went off. What is the Anglican position on the Apocrypha? What is the Anglican position on the Apocrypha? So the Apocrypha, for those of you who do not know, are certain books of the Bible that are um, what you might call in the intertestamental period, sort of, um, not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, uh, as generally considered in Protestant Bibles, 
In Catholic Bibles, they are bound in the middle between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for um, Anglicans, we do not view the Apocrypha as having the same stature as the Old Testament and the New Testament. But we do view it as books that may contain wisdom for godly living. So uh, we would not uh, give them the same weight uh, that we would give to the books in the canon of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah, great answer. Uh, it, for those who are asking the questions about Anglican stuff and what Anglicans believe, read through the 39 articles. There are only 39 of them. They're not that, <laughs> they're not that long, uh, but you can do that really easily. And, I mean, one of the questions, or one of the articles, Article 6, talks about the sufficiency of the Holy Scripture. So we, just like Brian said, it talks about that we believe that the Bible and the Old and New Testaments are the highest authority for Christian living, that they are the very Word of God. And it says the other books, uh, the Apocrypha, as Jerome said, the church reads them for example of life and instruction of matters, but it does not apply them to establish any doctrine or theology when it comes to the faith. Just what, just what Brian said, so you <laughs> pass with flying colors. Thanks, Professor. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Um, what is a good faith-based mental health counseling service in the area? What is a good faith-based mental health counseling service in the area? I am very biased about this. Uh, there is an extraordinary organization in Mount Pleasant called Life Resources, uh, which is uh, really nationally known as one of the leading faith-based counseling organizations. Um, all of their people are deeply committed to the Christian faith, and they also, many of them have doctorates from um, secular sources um, in the counseling field. So they bring together the best of both worlds with that. That's the only one I know in the area as well, but I will say I'm also biased because the seminary I went to in Philadelphia was, they had a, a school right next to it that had a partnership called the Christian Counseling Education Foundation, or CCEF. They do a national conference. I actually took college students to it not that long ago. It was awesome. And so I really like ccef.org. That's not, I mean, it's a national group, but there's some good stuff. They got little podcasts and uh, articles, all that sort of thing. And if you want to go with me to the national conference, you won't have to twist my arm because <laughs> I would love that sort of thing. And one other thing I would say in response to that is I'm so glad that the person said a Christian faith-based counseling because um, many of us in various points in our life may feel that we need to get counseling, which is something that I think is actually something that people um, who are strong do that because it's a way to bring extra resources to get through a trying period. Um, but I would caution you, um, if you are a Christian, to be very careful uh, about going to any kind of secular counselor because very often their presupp presuppositions may be very, very different. And a good counselor who's secular will ask you about your faith and will not want to advise you in a way that's opposite to that. But I've heard many stories of people where that has not been the case and they will advise people of courses of action that are in conflict with their faith, which just makes everything worse. Yeah, that's 
really just a, a crapshoot on what you're going to get yeah. in a secular world. Yeah. Um, there's some great ones, and then there's also ones that will completely say, you know, going against God's word, which is yeah. not good. <laughs> so, yep. I want to preface the next two questions <laughs> with the fact that they are the most liked and continue to get more liked. So I feel I need to ask them um, so that the crowd does not lose faith in... Are you blushing? It looks like you're blushing. <laughs> I don't know, no, I'm not. Okay. I want the crowd to lose faith in our commitment to asking... That's very important. It's very important. That's your role. So I said I would move to Canada if Trump got elected. Oh, How can I seek courage through Christ to follow through on my promise? That's just the first of the two. Because <laughs> we're going to have to repeat these questions. Okay, so that question I promised that I would move to Canada. Was it if Trump got elected or if he lost? If he got elected. If he got elected, how do I find the courage to follow through? Um, so I'm, I'm going to take a slightly different take on that. Um, I think that one of the issues that we have in our faith is getting our faith overly confused with politics. And the reason that I feel, I feel very strongly about this, um, but the reason I feel strongly about it is that we are told that Jesus is our example. And when you look at Jesus, Jesus was ministering in a backwater province of the Roman Empire that had one of the most corrupt governments in the history of the world with the Herod dynasty, um, who were utterly corrupt and sold out to the Romans. The Romans, who were one of the most oppressive regimes in the history of the world to people who were not Roman citizens. And you look at Jesus's public ministry, and there's absolutely zero about dealing with the government. Jesus deals with individuals. Now that is not to say that politics are unimportant and that Christians need to vote and that they need to vote their conscience. But whenever we start believing that salvation and uh, prosperity come on Air Force One, we are teetering in heresy. So I think we have to be very careful about those kinds of things. We're also enjoined in scripture to respect the authority that is over us and to pray for those who are in leadership, whether we like them or not. Would you like to add to that? I thought that was great. I would only add, the um, my mind went to the Old Testament when ancient Israel was exiled into Babylon and they just got super depressed. They you know, they were said they were going to be there for 70 years, and uh, they didn't want to do anything, right? They, they just weren't going to, uh, maybe they could just live in isolation or however they could pass that time. But the prophet Jeremiah writes to them, and he says this. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son and give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And I'm thinking, you know, Babylon was a pagan nation, and yet God's telling them to plant your roots there, which is the exact opposite of 
this question, that was a little harsh, but like this question saying, I'm going to just leave with whoever's in office. And I think that's so, like God's called you into a specific place. And I think it's wise to, to just plant your roots deep and to pray for where you are, um, to seek the welfare of where you are. And even if it's not going your way with whoever's in office. And I think that's an, a perfect example from the Old Testament of God's people being called to do precisely that. And ultimately, this entire, wherever you're going to go in the world, this world is not our home. Right. Right. And yes. I think that's what we're getting at. That we long for the wholeness and the restoration that is ultimately our citizenship in heaven. Yeah. So, yeah, we're actually very passionate about that question. <laughs> Sorry. What's the second one, second part of that? It's not the second part, it's a, it's a separate question. Okay, um, but it's equally as... Uh, what do you think of all boys are stupid attitudes? How do we balance not talking down brothers in Christ while acknowledging that sometimes they really suck? This actually got a lot of likes. Yeah. Okay, so say it, say it again. All, all boys are stupid. So, so one part, what, yeah. what do you think of all boys are stupid attitudes? Question. <laughs> Part two: How do we balance not talking down brothers in Christ while acknowledging that sometimes they really suck? Okay, so all boys are stupid. Attitude. What do we think about that? And how do you balance that with the fact that sometimes it really does seem that way? Um, so um, I would say a couple of things about that. One is that the, and I, I'm, I hope this is not offensive to anyone, but. Prejudice comes whenever you start looking at groups of people and making generalizations about them instead of dealing with people on an individual basis. And so I think making group statements about any group as being stupid, even if that seems to have been your experience with them, is just not helpful. And that Jesus looks at everyone through eyes of compassion. Um, the second thing I would say about that is that in our culture, um, and this is, this is contrary to the narrative that you see in the media, but it is, in most of the media anyway, but it is absolutely a fact, um, boys and men in this culture are in crisis. Boys and men, by every measure, are in crisis that is far statistically um, worse than what's going on with women in our culture. And so you can speculate a lot about what the reasons for that might be. But I think the best thing to do, whether you are a guy or a girl, um, in your relationships with people of the other gender is to pray for those people, um, to have relationships with individuals where you don't fall into prejudice or generalizations. And poor Justin just went through this uh, being generalized when he made the courageous decision to be the room parent for his daughter's Valentine's Day party. And the, the I'm sure, very well-intentioned, lovely ladies who were moms were like, oh, um, you probably need us to help. Um, you won't know what to. And of course, Justin wore black tie and a hat and um, brought candy sandwiches and silver trays and um, yeah. blew it out of the water, but that's why our stereotypes just get us in trouble.
Sorry to embarrass you. No, yeah, no. Yeah, I saw it as a challenge, too, at that point. Had they said nothing, I wouldn't have done nearly as much, right? But, like, the fact that they were like, oh, he's doing it, you know? So I, uh, I stepped up for that reason. But, no, you're right. I think that it's, and I've noticed this, just any relationship. When you start saying always, never, all people, like, those are general statements that are just not helpful. This is just not really, really true. However, God, do, to, to balance the pain and the accountability of this, like you said, there is a crisis at play, and God holds individuals accountable and responsible, and uh, and so he doesn't let anybody off the hook. And so I, I, behind the sentiment of, you know, the first part of that question, you know, the, the all boys, or well, I forget. Boys what, are stupid. Boys are stupid. All boys are stupid. I think there's a, a heart that's hurting from somebody who's probably experienced an immature boy as opposed to being the person that God's called them to be. Those weren't bad. Those weren't bad questions. Uh, why aren't, why don't we have women in the clergy? Why don't we have women in the clergy? Um, I'm not sure who we is there. Um, St. Philip's currently does not have any ordained women in the clergy. Um, there are in the Anglican Communion women who are ordained clergy. Um, there is a um, long-held uh, difference of opinion within people who are people I would consider to be faithful Christians about what the role of um, gender in ordained ministry is. Um, you can argue it both ways from scripture, I think. Um, so, uh, but the, the position in the Anglican Church right now is that there are um, equal opportunities for men and women to be ordained, that there's not, there's not a bar um, against women's ordination. That's right. I just uh, went into detail in this in the last class I did on Sunday morning, so uh, trying not to just spend 20 minutes on this answer. <laughs> um, there are a couple things I would add to that. One, there are very, very smart, way smarter than I am, uh, ladies who hold to the belief that there should not be female clergy. So that, and, and, and I think we have to be careful not to just dispute that they're not enlightened or whatnot. Um, again, like everything you said, I agree with. Uh, I would also say it's really important when you look at church history we really need to avoid chronological snobbery, which is something that C.S. Lewis talks about, that all these people are just dumb and unenlightened, and they did all these bad things. Well, it's, that's a very high view of ourselves, I think. And so the fact that um, women's ordination particularly is a very, very recent development in the church's history ought to at least give some sort of pause in the conversation that we can talk about this. So that was one of the ways that those who are on the more conservative side of it, they will point to how, like we said earlier, the church has understood the places of scripture as well. That, that they point to that there's actually differences between men and women, not in capacity. Like that's a big, nobody's making this that women are dumb. They don't have the capacity for leadership. My wife is the same thing in marriage. Like it is not the case that my wife is like less of a leader in any way. Uh, but it's just like in a play where you have people in marriage acting out the parts of Jesus in the church. The same thing is true, uh, I think, in, in church leadership. And one of the things that I found helpful in Rebecca McLaughlin's book, The Ten Questions Every Teen Should Answer, she talks about this 
Um, oftentimes in, in the early church and today in many places in the world, uh, teaching God's word, which is the primary role of somebody who's a clergy person, brought with it danger and assault and usually would not go over well. And so there was the idea that uh, it might not be an accident that God appointed men to be in those roles to lay down their lives for teaching the faith. I, I've never heard that before, but I think that is one of those things that's winsome to me about that. But again, it's a it's a secondary issue that is not on the same level as how are we, how do we become Christians? How are we saved? We have people within the Christian faith who dis- disagree and are on different parts of that spectrum. That wasn't 20 minutes. That was all right, <laughs> but I went off a little bit there. Sorry. Uh, one more? One more. Do you think that Jesus would change the overtime rules for the NFL playoffs? <laughs> <laughs> he should. Yeah. You know, I think I'm going to really step into it with this. But, um, do you think Jesus would change the overtime rules for the NFL playoffs? I think Jesus might have something to say about the NFL and about the Super Bowl and about the amount of time and energy and resources that go into that and the amount of time that we spend dealing with that in terms of our priorities. That being said, um, I will defy you to find anywhere in scripture where Jesus talks about games at all, um, which doesn't mean games are bad. Um, It just means that it's something that is not um, in God's economy, something that is ultra important. Couldn't, couldn't say it better than that. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> There's a great book by Neil Postman that's called Amusing Ourselves to Death um, that I would highly recommend uh, thinking about. It's deeply connected to the sin of sloth, which no one talks about anymore. So. It's good. And we are definitely in a culture that is amusing ourselves to death, it yes. seems like. So. Well, thank you so much for coming. We're just a little over time, but this was a lot of fun. We still have so many questions. More for the next Yeah, we'll save these for for next time. And uh, feel free to stick around. We'd love if you have any questions or particularly some of those questions. If you're like, I really was not satisfied with that answer. I want more. Come and talk to us. We're always here. So thank you all so much for coming. We look forward to seeing you next time.